I want to ask you, when you make a choice, when you make a particular decision, do you ever stop to wonder and question your own motivation? Um, I'm sure you have. We all tend to wonder why we do things sometimes. Uh, and sometimes it pays to do that. You say, hang on a minute, why am I doing this? Why am I going in a certain direction? Probably not every decision we make involves that, uh, because some are simply quite obvious. Uh, they don't need to be questioned. Many we don't think about. If you ask people why they make certain decisions, how they come to make their choices, they tend to think that most of the time it's their brain, that is their mind and intellect which is telling them to make that decision. And yet, there's a bit of their heart or emotions or desires involved in it. Um, they think they're probably making their choices from sound, objective reasoning. Why do I do this? Why do I do that? Oh, it looks nice. I want it. Gee, it will be good. Uh, gee, I'm, I'm, you know, I, I deserve that treat. It makes me feel special. So we have these mixed inputs to the calls that we make in life. Perhaps up to 80% with what we think is best and maybe 20% uh, with our emotions. What happens when it comes to the really important decisions? Like, what career will I pursue? Um, where will I live? What car will I buy? Who will be my life partner? Or the really, really important decisions about which footy team you're going to support? Well, psychologists tell us that rather than 80% mind and 20% heart, it's actually more the other way around. Our choices, our decisions are driven much more by how we feel or what we want rather than objective reason. That 80-20 split can be reversed. I guess you only have to look at the advertising and the dollars that get spent to understand the situation. Advertising tends to be all about me, my wants, my desires, you'll feel special, uh, and this is what you want to do. It tends to appeal to our hearts. And the psalm we're looking at today, Psalm 14, seems to back this up. Now for those who are new to Salt or just visiting, we're spending this term and the message has been taken from selected psalms. Today, obviously Psalm 14. Next week, uh, because Dave is taking a bit of time off to prepare for the camp, uh, and of course he's away, we'll have Jordan Peterson, who is the Associate Pastor at the Point Church, which is our sister church up in, up in Port. Uh, he will be coming to uh, share God's Word with us. And the following week, the lead pastor of the Point, Steve Kovitz, will be coming down. So we'll look forward to that. So just as we begin, let me just pray. Father, we thank you for the opportunities you give us by giving us your Word. We thank you we have it to read, to study, to teach, to be encouraged, uh, to be challenged from. And uh, this afternoon as we spend time in your word, we just pray that you'll be with us, you'll guide us, because we want to honour you as we spend this time together. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the opening lines in this psalm are uh, pretty well known. Uh, the fool says in his heart there is no God. It's worth noticing that the point of decision here is the heart. That is, the emphasis is on a heart choice, a heart choice rather than a choice of the intellect. But if maybe 20% or more of our decisions are made with our intellect, let's spend a little time considering that aspect first. 
Now, if we happen to be an atheist, one who doesn't believe that God exists, what led us to arrive at that decision? What is it that generates that, uh, that call? And how much was that decision to be an atheist a decision of the heart or a decision of the mind? Now, I suspect that most people who are atheists will claim that their position is derived at almost exclusively because of their intellect. Their mind, their reasoning has led them there. Because they know better than people who, have, who follow ancient religions, ancient superstitions, people like us who have an imaginary friend and who can't get, life, uh, get through life without the emotional crutch of our faith. Some of the more publicised or the louder atheists in our society consider that anyone who believes in God is, to be honest, not very bright. Uh, in fact, we are labelled stupid or ignorant. I hope you can see that. On every side, there is conclusive evidence that faith causes people to be more mean, more selfish, and perhaps above all, more stupid. And that's from the late Christopher Hitchens, one of the uh, leading atheists of the 20th century. So that's what, uh, that's what Christopher thinks. But that's not to tar all atheists with the same brush. I've got a number of reasonably close friends who are atheists. They hold their views in a considerate manner and are respectful of, uh, of my faith, at least while I'm around anyway, uh, and I appreciate that. Let's just spend a little time examining what one of the leading, better known intellectual atheists has to say. One of the people who undoubtedly would claim to be, have arrived at their position by their reason, guided by science and not by some ancient writings or tradition. One of the most influential and well-known atheists in the modern era is Richard Dawkins. Richard is an evolutionary biologist. Uh, you've probably heard of him because he wrote the book called The God Delusion. Just a couple of uh, foundational quotes to, to begin with. Um, the universe we observe has precisely the properties we should expect if there is at bottom no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. And further he says, it is all blind, random, purposeless chance. That's from uh, Richard Dawkins. But he didn't just leave it there, he went one further with a famous quote that I hope will come okay on the screen. Yeah, here we are, okay, you can read it. This is quite well known. The God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all of fiction. Jealous and proud of it, a petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak, a vindictive, bloodthirsty ethnic cleanser, a misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, philicidal, pestilential, megalomaniacal, sadomachistic, capriciously malevolent bully. <laughs> Say what you like about Richard, but he does have a way with words. <laughs> but does that sound entirely irrational to you? Is he making that call purely from intellectual grounds? Obviously, uh, we would question his understanding of biblical theology to say the least. Uh, but even so, I think there's another obvious inconsistency here. He says, life is nothing but blind, purposeless chance. There's no evil, there's no good, it's all random. So I'm questioning why he's getting his intellectual knickers in a knot, because it's just not consistent to do that. After all, if life is meaningless, 
why should he care? There's really no point. Is there no good, no evil? Then there's no sound logical basis for making such a call. So I wonder if Dawkins and some of the others are making their assessment on objective grounds, or is maybe there's some emotion there, something else they're looking for. I've never met Richard Dawkins, and I probably never will, but it would be an interesting question to ask. Well, let's see what God says. Roman, uh, Paul writing in Romans, What may be known about God is plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that men are without excuse. One of the leading atheists from the 20th century was a guy named, a British guy named Anthony Flew. He was a well-known British philosopher and a really very um, prominent in the atheist movement. But later in life, he changed his mind about God. He considered the design in the universe was too much to ignore uh, for something that was just blind, meaningless chance. And he wrote a book. It's called There Is a God, How the World's Most Notorious Atheist Changed His Mind. Well, the other leading atheists were not too pleased. And they said he must have developed dementia. <laughs> but he managed to write a book. If you take some time to read what some of the leading atheists have to say, there's a tendency for their arguments denying God to rest largely on telling you what's wrong with religion, particularly uh, what's wrong with Christianity. Occasionally in my own little world, I've had the opportunity to ask atheists how or why they've arrived at their position. And I find a similar tendency to tell me all the things that are wrong with faith, with the church. Common objections like, given there are so many religions in the world, how can one religion claim to be right and the others all be wrong? Or, mostly they just tell me about all the faults in organised religion. And of course they're right, because there are many faults to be found in organised religion, and sadly, even in the Christian church. There have always been things wrong, and there always will be things wrong, until Jesus returns. There are faults in me, there are faults in you, and after all, we are the church, and will never be perfect this side of heaven. But I found that after encountering these criticisms, rather than trying to muster arguments to counter their comments, which was my first inclination, um, as in, well, you're not really understanding the God of the Old Testament, time is better spent to quietly ask them to share with us their answers to the fundamental questions of life. Questions like, who am I? Where did I come from? How did I get here? Why am I here? What is my purpose in life? But then stand back if you ask those questions and observe how limited are the answers. Because intellectual atheism has so little to contribute in answer to these questions. The Bible, on the other hand, provides much more solid answers. And a point of encouragement, there are significant and substantial intellectually based arguments for the existence of God and for the Christian faith. The everyday Aussie is just not interested, but for those who need to know, those who want to know, the arguments are there. But it does take a bit of work. That said, the ultimate defence for our faith 
is founded squarely on the resurrection of Jesus. If Jesus truly was raised from the dead, then Christianity is correct. It is true. You can depend on it. But if it didn't happen, then we are the fools that atheists claim us to be. Even the Apostle Paul had something to say. He said, if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is worthless, and so is your faith. But we can be confident in the resurrection. I think for us, if we at least have a passing awareness of the massive evidence that there is, we can stand strong in the face of any intellectual argument. And if you haven't read about the resurrection, if you haven't studied it, uh, then I encourage you to do so. There are a lot of good books to help in that regard. One other factor that appeals to atheists is the freedom that they believe to live their lives knowing that there is no God to answer to. And it sort of sounds attractive at first thought. They can simply live as they choose. If God doesn't exist, then they're absolutely correct. Any of our moral choices of what we decide is simply arbitrary. You think's right, but I think's right, but anybody else thinks it's right. Good is whatever you think it to be, and evil is up for you to decide. And it's a big quandary for atheists to provide a logical basis for moral choices we make. If there's no good, if there's no evil, if our universe is nothing more than one giant cosmic fluke, one great accident of uh, history, then there are no right or wrong choices. You do whatever you like, provided you can get away with it. Now, this is not to suggest that atheists actually do this. They don't. But it's a logical outcome of their worldview. Most people I know who are atheists live ordinary lives, quite normal, quite normal lives. There's just an intellectual inconsistency in their doing this. If we decide there's no God, is our decision based on what we think is sound reasoning in our minds, or is it based on what we prefer the answer to be, our hearts? In the case of Hitchens and Dawkins, there does seem to be a bit of emotion involved. Their hearts do seem to be engaged in their comments. And a final thought on saying in your heart there is no God. You don't have to be a card-carrying atheist to have these inconsistencies. We can be a practical atheist as well. Most Australians are. Most of us believe that there's a God, uh, or we have some, at least a vague, non-descriptive idea of some supernatural being there. But if we don't act on that belief, if we push God to the margins, then to all intents and purposes, how is that different from hardcore atheists? Practically speaking, what's the difference? It's clear from reading scripture that God calls us to respond to him. He made us, he loves us, he wants us to be in a relationship with him, a relationship for which he originally made us. But if we ignore the God of this universe, if we ignore his word, ignore his call, where does that leave us? Now we may well be living what we think are pretty decent lives. Most of us tend to think that. We might believe in God, but if that, God, if that living God doesn't impact our lives in the way his word tells us it ought to, then we in fact shutting God out of our lives. And the sad thing is that God has our best interests at heart. He wants us to give what's best for us. Well, verse 1 says, The fool says in his heart there is no God. So whether, 
we are convinced in our minds or our hearts that God doesn't exist, or if we're living as though God doesn't exist, then we're all clearly living in a fool's paradise. And one day we'll stand before God and we have to account for our choice. Now in effect the primary message of Psalm 14 is really aimed at those people who choose in their hearts to believe there's no God and accordingly treat others badly as if there are no consequences. God says these people are fools. But rather the wise person knows there is a God, that God is concerned with how we treat others, especially how we treat his people. But it goes on to say, they are corrupt, their deeds are vile, there is no one who does good. No one who does good? They're pretty strong words. Well, maybe when David wrote this, when he, he wrote it, he was thinking back from the time of Psalms to the time of Noah, when everyone did just as they wanted to. The Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become, and that every inclination and thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. But interestingly, the Apostle Paul, writing later in Romans, about a thousand years after David, wrote this, Their thinking became futile, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools. And Paul then goes on to describe some of the tragic sins which can result from shutting out the concept of God uh, from us. History shows this to be a pretty accurate picture of the way the human race goes uh, and the results can become rampant sin. There are consequences. But then there's an interesting picture given to us in verse 2 and 3. The Lord looks down from heaven on the sons of men to see if there are any who understand, any who seek God. All have turned aside. They together become corrupt. There is no one who does good not even one. So you get this picture of God looking at the earth and not seeing one good person. Seriously? God can't see one good person? Why is that? Well the answer is because there are no good people. Now we might find that a bit hard to digest. But just consider these words from the Apostle Paul. All have turned away, they have become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. He's picking up Psalm 14 when he's writing in Romans. And he returns to this theme a little later when he says, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And Paul doesn't spare himself. Elsewhere he describes himself as the worst or the chief of sinners. The man who wrote much of our New Testament is labelling himself as a terrible sinner. At least you've got to think and ask why. So in Psalm 14 we have got looking down at us and seeing not one righteous person. And Paul then writing later on and saying, yep, that's correct, includes me. Now when I look at you guys, I see good people. Well, most of you anyway. Um, people who live pretty good lives, people who love their families, respect each other, care for each other, people who support their communities, people who give to charities, people who care for nature and the environment. In fact, I see some very good people, and I actually like some of you. But we look at the outer, and we don't look at the deep things of heart where God only God can look. I would never label you 
as sinful, as corrupt, as vile. But I'm not the one looking at you here. God is. And his standards are the ones of holiness and perfection that we struggle to understand in our minds. He's looking at humans by his standards, not the standards that we use, his standards. And there's a big difference. No one can measure up to God's standards. I don't measure up to God's standards. You don't measure up to God's standards. Paul the Apostle did measure up to God's standards. So where does this leave us? Well, thankfully, God has a plan. We might even say that he has a cunning plan. But first, in verse 4, we get to this rhetorical question. Will evildoers never learn? Those who devour my people as men eat bread and who do not call on the Lord. Well, just a sec. If there are no righteous people to be found on earth, how at the same time can there be people belonging to God, God's people, described as the righteous. If the previous verses are correct, then the only answer is that God's people must be sinners too. And Psalm, verse, Psalm 14 goes on to say in verse 5, There they, that's the evildoers, are overwhelmed with dread, for God is present in the company of the righteous. This is telling us that evildoers see God's people really as a bit of a threat. So they go about devouring them as if eating bread. I like eating bread. Bread's good. Put a warm crusty loaf or a roll in front of me and um, I don't know where to stop. I'm not sure what sort of bread they had back in the time of Psalms, which was about 3,000 years ago. I guess it must have been reasonable at least. But we're told that evildoers devour those people as if they were eating bread. Why? I think this is telling us that people who believe in God are seen as a bit of a threat to those who deny God or to those who ignore God. Those who want the freedom to live life as they choose, not as God would have them live, which would be the best for them. We're a threat. And you guys don't look very threatening to me. We haven't even got any of our holy riders present in the congregation today, so even they're not very threatening either. What is threatening is that if we are God's people, if we're following Jesus, we can be a bit of an unwelcome handbrake on certain ways of thinking. Oh, they're religious. In other words, you better be careful around them. But we remember that God is present in the company of the righteous. It's God who makes people uncomfortable, not really us. Now, I know some of this can be a bit of, well, annoying, but that's not the reason. Plenty of people can be annoying. But it's because trying to follow Jesus can be a little affront to those who aren't interested. It makes them uncomfortable. And at the very extreme end of things, dictator governments have always come down hard on those who disagree with their dictates, with their false ideologies. Even today, Christians are the most persecuted people on earth. Look, we're fine here in Oz at the moment, although some of you are probably aware of the recent legislation passed in Victoria about a week or two ago, which bans prayer in certain circumstances with the punishment uh, of fines and prison. But in China, in North Korea, Iran, Pakistan, and the list goes on, even in parts of India, many Christians are being devoured. They live in fear of their lives. 
But verse 6 tells us that help is at hand. You evildoers frustrate the plans of the poor, but the Lord is their refuge. A hostile society can make life difficult for the people of God, but God is with them as their refuge. He will not let them down. He's present with the righteous. As Jesus said to his disciples, I'm with you always, even to the ends of the age. But that doesn't quite address the earlier question, how come God cannot see any righteous people but his present with the righteous? We'll come back to God's master plan now in verse 7. Oh, that the salvation of Israel will come out of Zion when the Lord restores the fortunes of his people. Let Jacob rejoice and Israel be glad. Well, this is the good news. The time when God will rescue his people. He will turn around their fortunes. He will overcome those who deny him, those who oppress his people. Now, God's people here are described in Old Testament terms as Jacob and Israel. They will be rescued and their salvation will come from Zion. Zion is the region around Jerusalem. And King David's time is probably signified to them, to the hearers, the um, time when Israel's fortunes would be restored, when God's temple would be re-established in Jerusalem. But what we also see here in Psalm 14 is a foretaste of the grand rescue, the good news that eventually came in Jesus. About a thousand years after the time that this psalm was written, God entered the world in human form, Jesus. And Jesus lived a life which did meet God's perfect standards. His love for us meant he was prepared to suffer the consequences of our sin taking our place. God placed on him the punishment for our sin. 2 Corinthians, God made for him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And this also happened in Jerusalem, in Zion. What a surprise. And so we learn with the benefit of a little foresight and a lot of hindsight that this was always God's plan. We don't have to be good enough. We don't have to meet God's perfect standard. We've got no hope of meeting God's standard through our own efforts. But now, when God looks down on us, his people, he sees us through the lens of Jesus' sacrifice. We aren't righteous, but Jesus is. And God, when he looks down on us, now sees us as righteous. And that is the best news that anyone can hear. If you've come to understand how much God loves you, how much he wants to enjoy fellowship with you, how much trouble he went to in order to provide the good news plan that would make it all possible, how much he wants to add to your life, then always remember to thank him for who he is, for who you are, and how special you are in his eyes, and of course for Jesus who made it all possible. As Christians, we are the ones with the incredible freedom, not the atheists. We have the freedom from knowing, we have the freedom of knowing that our lives are in God's hands, now and for all eternity. It's not the temporary freedom of the atheist who considers there is no God to answer to. But it is our job to love and care, as Gary mentioned, for all our fellow human beings. 
the very best thing we can do for them, not the only thing, but the very best thing we can do is to share the good news that we have come to understand, but to do it carefully and respectfully and gently. So whether people are hardcore atheists, practical atheists, doesn't matter. God calls us to love and care for them, to try and demonstrate what Jesus has already shown to us when he lived on earth. I'm going to finish there. Let me just finish with a word of prayer. Father, we want to thank you for the fantastic grand plan that you had to bring salvation to your people. And we want to thank you for revealing it to us, for giving us the opportunity to respond and to enjoy life with you, a life that is the abundant life that you have promised. So we thank you for that. And we pray that you to help us to be the people you want. We fail, we do things wrong, we know, we apologise. But we thank you that your love continues and we are safe in Jesus. And we thank you in his name. Amen.